This is a Glass Box Media Podcast. The episodes in this feed were originally published on Crawlspace. Please use caution while listening and follow Crawlspace Podcast for more. Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. What's up, Lance? What's going on? How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to bring our wonderful audience this great episode with our friends, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott. And once again, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott bring to the table so much useful information that you can apply to any one of the true crime cases that you might be looking into, whether you're doing this professionally like we do, or you're doing it on the side like another good friend like Laura Rist, for example. She was looking into Trenny Gibson's case, and there's even stuff within what Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott are talking about that can apply to that case as well. But it's not just the details, it's more like their thorough research and the, and the practice that they put into it. Yeah, it's really amazing. And they, they speak casually to each other in their podcast. And so you don't really feel like you're learning when you are learning. It's great. You almost like it, it tricks you. That's my, uh, my plug. I hope that's a good plug. I think that's a good, really good thing, right? Oh, that's a really good thing. If you can be tricked into learning by somebody else or you have the capability as a teacher, as, as someone who is delivering the knowledge to not be... Uh, preachy to not make someone feel like they're being spoken down to they keep you on their level they joke around and at the same time you're learning you walk away from it and you say that was one of the better learning experiences you could have had without even knowing so in this episode we talk about the dark triad it's a psychology topic and it's kind of like i guess a niche topic um inside psychology narcissism psychopathy and Machiavellianism makes up that dark triad. Yeah, the the Machiavellianism is an interesting element to it because the definition of that means that that personality trait sort of gets, um, gets pleasure out of tricking people, gets pleasure out of outsmarting people and being deceptive and almost impossible to put a diagnosis on because they can talk their way out of being that. And so that that's what makes... Um, this dark triad so rare and so kind of kind of terrifying it is terrifying and it is fun to talk about the good doctors at la not so confidential did an episode recently called con men and the dark triad and it's uh, pretty comprehensive and they go into uh how how a con man can sort of fit into this mold uh sometimes too so it's not always like a serial killer or something like that so it's really interesting listening i hope you enjoy it and uh, make sure to check out their podcast and subscribe to them and follow them on social media. There are links in the show notes. And they are part of the Crawlspace Media Network. You can check out the other shows at crawlspace-media.com for the other shows that we have on our network, which you can listen to, subscribe, and even if you want to rate it like four stars, just go ahead and rate it five because yeah. it's really no skin off your back. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.
Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott of LA Not So Confidential. What's going on? Hey guys, how are you? Couldn't be better. Awesome. <laughs> it's been it's been really great uh, knowing the two of you and learning so much from the two of you. And I'm specifically just talking about Twin Peaks stuff. <laughs> uh, I mean, I know, I know that. That yeah. was really fun. That was a really fun thing to do off the cuff. That was cool. Thank you guys, Tim and Scott, for being good sports, by the way. <laughs> yeah. So Shiloh and Lance both uh, have Twin Peaks tattoos, and you guys came on our Patreon page to, uh, to discuss uh, Twin Peaks, really just kind of geek out over it. And uh, me and Scott were a little left in the lurch. <laughs> Mission accomplished on that too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well done. Nice job. Virtual high five. <laughs> yeah. But but uh, seriously though, um, the stuff that we've learned from the two of you since we've gotten to know the two of you and your show, LA Not So Confidential, has been there's there's just a handful of people that we've walked away from saying I like that cliche like I learned something today like like seriously learned something today every time we talk to you so i can't i can't think of a higher compliment i mean i seriously thank you so much i mean that's that's what we wanted to do and we wanted to make it you know so that it's interesting but i mean i don't know if we ever did we ever really intend for it to be educational i don't think we did i think a, a bit yeah and it but that's hard with this crowd you know the true crime community knows a lot they, and do. they have done yeah. their homework yeah. so whenever somebody says that um i i just you know it is it is a really high compliment well check out their podcast la not so confidential of course it's on the crawlspace media network hello <laughs> Um, but, uh, but we wanted to have you on here tonight and it is, it is evening, um, on the East coast here. Uh, and we wanted to talk about some psychology issues because you guys are both in that field. And if you don't mind, could you, uh, describe what you do for a living? Yeah. Shiloh and I are both psychologists. We're both licensed in the state of California as, uh, clinical psychologists, but our education is slightly different. Um, Shiloh has a, de a degree from a program that is a forensics program. It's strictly forensics, but she gets all the clinical training that is required for a doctoral degree. I have a clinical degree with an emphasis in family forensics, which was more about uh, working in the court system. Uh, and it wasn't, it was also, but also to be able to work with sort of uh, public agencies as well. But um you know, you get your basic education and then you go and you get, do an internship and your the internship and the trainings are almost, they're as important as the education and sometimes even more important because you can get a great education and have absolutely crappy training and then you're screwed. I mean, you can come out, out you know, you can graduate, you got your doctorate and your license and you've got no clinical acumen and then you're really screwed. And Shiloh and I met doing our um, internship uh, right, you know, our last year before we graduated and we just immediately hit it off and we were working with, um, sex offenders, uh, pre incarceration and post incarceration, uh, working at a really like just falling apart building in South central LA, which was charming. Um, but it, it's been a fantastic ride. It's been over a decade and we just, we like, we look at each other and go, 
oh my God, I love my job. Like, and you know, not many people can say that. And every day I'm just, I love what I do. I work, I partner with the law enforcement agency. I'm part of another healthcare agency, but I partner with um, an officer to follow up in the community uh, with people who are escalating in high risk behaviors because of their mental illness. And what we do, our goal is to keep them from getting arrested. And our goal is to get them back into treatment so that we can, you know, destigmatize the perception of mental illness in the community and also get people the help that they need so that they don't fall between the cracks. That's what I do. And then Shiloh is like literally on the other end. You want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah. So I, I'm, I work with law enforcement where the, the law enforcement officers are my clients. Um, but I think what is probably most relevant to the conversation we're going to have today is what Scott and I did sort of in those 10 years after school, um, which I continued working in sex offender, uh, psychological and risk assessment and treatment. And um, Scott went on to go work actually in prisons where, you know, 70 to 80% of them could probably be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. So, you know, we're going to talk about some of those themes today. Um, but we spent a really long time working with this population that we're going to talk about um, and seeing it in all different ways. And it, I, I still, you know, Scott's coming into that element a little bit at his job right now. Um, and then I have a very small private practice where I sort of keep my foot in the door in sex offender treatment. But um, yeah, it's it's been a big part of our career and fascinating beyond belief, you know, that that's what I came into this job to do. So I just, you know, most psychologists are fascinated with human behavior, layer criminal behavior on top of that. And then for me, the trifecta was sexual criminal behavior. And I was like, just, I need to know everything. Why did each of you choose the respective paths? Like, Scott, why did you choose to handle people who are incarcerated? What was it? What was it about that? And, and Shiloh, what was it about the, the sex offender side of it. So that's, I wish I could say that it was because I just, I'm an altruist. Um, but it's not, I mean, I'm a nice guy, but ultimately it was the, the prison systems in California, um, really are the new mental hospitals of the old days because we don't have a nationwide system of hospitals the way we used to. The reason for that was that they were incredibly expensive, but rather than fix the system, they basically just started shutting them down across the country. And now we have an, we have an enormous percentage of homeless in this country that are profoundly mentally ill, like profoundly mentally ill. And um, our prisons now handle um, people that are not criminally insane or, or particularly criminogenic, but may have committed pretty bad crimes, having to do as a uh, as an extension of their mental illness and their functioning in the world. So anyway, the reason I did it was because it was a fantastic job for somebody right out of school and it was a it was a, a good amount of money. It was like competitive salary with full benefits. A program where they would pay back your student loans. Yeah, that helps pay back your student loans. But the other part of it was is that I have a I have an, uh, an acquaintance um, that committed a horrific, horrific crime back in the 80s. And 
has been in prison for that since then. And the thing that turned his life around was getting a good counselor. I mean, it, it literally changed the path of his life and his perspective. Um, and for me, that was kind of a mate, like, oh, somebody, you can have that kind of an impact on some, on people. And, you know, you get that in your, um, private practice as well. Cause I do a small private practice on the side as well. But I mean, it was, you know, I needed a job and then I got there and it was like, your brain just is like the synapses are crackling. You're learning so much about that percentage of the men who end up in prison that like Shiloh was saying is about 70 to 80% of them have a lot of what we're going to be talking today. They have aspects of the dark triad if they, if they don't have the full the full yeah. three scoops in their dish. <laughs> three <Yeah>. scoops. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yummy. I didn't know it was scoops. <laughs> well, tell us. Can can you tell us about the uh, the three scoops of the dark triad? Well, sh- let Shiloh would like. Oh, how sorry. did you? You were going to let her. That's okay. Pardon me. Oh. I interrupted. <laughs> That's okay. Um, no, I like I said. I just that was the trifecta of really interesting um, criminology for me, and I up until. The last few months of internship, I was, I had tested with the FBI. I was on track. They give me a, a conditional job offer. Um, I was really taking my steps. I, I didn't go into school wanting to be a psychologist. I just wanted to get the, to get the degree so that I would be a better candidate when I did end up applying for the FBI. And, you know, I, I think I fell in love with the work, but also by the time you reach grad school, I mean, it's also a decision that you're thinking about with your family. And for me to go across the country and get into another academy, by that time I was married, I didn't have kids yet, but my husband had just gotten a new job here in California, also in law enforcement, to pick up and leave and then not know where the heck they're going to assign me. You know, I'd probably be divorced by now. Uh, or maybe I'd be remarried by now. I don't know. It's been a long yeah, time, it's a, but it, it's, it's a tough, you know, it's, it's a, a tough life. Yeah. When, when my, the company we work for said, Hey, we'd love to hire you continue, you know, and I could continue doing what I was doing. Not only did I love it, but then when I love something, I want to get good at it. And so that was just an easy decision for me. Very cool. So the dark triad um, is made up of three sort of phenomena of, personality traits. Um, and they're, they're what they call negative personality traits or features. And the, the construct was really coined back in 2002, um, by some researchers, Paul Hoos and Williams, and was covered. The, the idea was covered very extensively in a more recent book called the confidence game, which is by Maria uh, Konnikova. And that's when Scott and I recently kind of dove into this because we covered con men and kind of why do people fall for it and what is the psychology behind con men. Um, And so the dark triad is really at the root of a lot of that research. Um, And so it's made up of essentially traits of psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And out of those three, narcissism, narcissistic personality disorder is the only one that's actually a true diagnosis and disorder. And we'll, we'll tease that apart for you a little bit, but those are the three main scoops of the dark triad. (laughs) In a real, it's just a really goth Sunday. (laughs) It's all black. It's all angsty. Yeah. Emo. I hear the term Machiavellianism 
and I think I know what it means, and I've read the definition, and I've read subjects who have been, I guess, I don't want to say diagnosed, because I think that's what you were getting at. Is that, what is, can you define, what is your definition of Machiavellianism uh, and your opinion on whether or not this is something that is a learned trait, or is this something that is some some chemical not firing in the brain? Like, this all I, I feel like all three of these terms are so hard to get crystallized into your brain as to what it means and then also hard to explain. <laughs> so I, I have felt like that too. I mean, it, you are not alone in this. You know what it is? It's like some people can just accept that other people have, let's say, a light triad. You know, hey, she's a, she's a good person. She's happy. She makes good conversation. You know, you can't right. really, you can't say I, I'm diagnosed by being a, I'm a good conversationalist. You have a podcast. Yes, yeah, so you can, you can diagnose it. <laughs> well, I was actually, exactly. just, I, was, I was sort of hinting w- that maybe these two doctors that's could just, diagnose That's just me. talking at people. It's not no. conversational. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were you going to say, Scott? I was just going to make a point that like we do, I mean, it's because we work in this genre. I mean, we work in this field and we collaborate with you guys in this genre we don't necessarily talk about like positive triads, you know, <laughs> right. that are, that make the world a wonderful place and make people really great in spite of like having bad times and maybe acting out in anger or sadness or frustration. But, you know, when we do hear something about like the dark triad, we, I mean, we, we sort of elevate this to this really high degree, a, a toxic individual when there's really only like, and especially in this makeup, it's less, is it less than 1%? Is it 0.5 to 3% Shiloh? I know that's, uh, a, yeah. it's 0.5 to one for narcissism. I mean, diagnosable narcissism, but um, you know, it's like something that just gets a lot of traction. It gets a lot, yeah. cause it's, it's, it's so alien to most of us. The idea of, I mean, Machiavellianism is based on Machiavelli who wrote a book called the Prince and the Prince is about what is like basically a manual for how a dictator should run a, a, a king, a kingdom or a, right. con- a country. And to your point, Lance, if someone has that sort of brain structure and this is the kind of personality that they have and they want to be a demagogue and they want to boss people around and they want to manipulate people, then this is a book that they get drawn to because it really does have some very astute observations from, I think, the 16th century or 17th century on how humans behave and it's the same thing that stalin and mussolini and hitler all understood very intrinsically about human behavior and i i would say if we're gonna really dilute it down the hallmark of it is going to be this ruthlessness to exploit and manipulate people for your gain um the the researchers who developed, I think, Lance, you had sent us um, a version of the Machiavellian scale test. So those researchers developed that in the 70s. And they, from their research, they felt it definitely was a very distinct personality trait. So personality is pervasive. Excuse me. You know, there is a a nurture and nature um, construct to personality. But most of the research shows that it is very cognitive. It is how they think. It's how they process. They're going to have a very pessimistic view of humanity. They are um, going to want to manipulate people because they think everybody is just very gullible and sort of for the taking. 
and um, they're selfish and and untrustworthy by nature because of this ruthlessness. Is that clear as mud? Does that not? <laughs> no, that's great. That's pretty clear. It seems uh, in my research, it's it's about uh, planning and li- like long term planning and and almost like they enjoy seeing people. I don't want to say suffer, but enjoy getting one over on someone. Right. Right. Yeah. I, so the definitely the, hard to define. Yeah. The comparison that I make is Frank Underwood in House of Cards. You know, he was always about the long game in planning how to take people out to get to the top ruthlessness, manipulation, um, killing people. You know, of course, it's a fictional character, but whatever he had to do to get what he wanted. When you said the part about how they manipulate people in order to get what they want or they manipulate people, yeah, in order to get what they want, does that apply in every circumstance? Like, is it... Uh, I guess I guess I, I need a little bit more clarification between what Tim just said, which is they kind of have fun doing it. So is it something that like could it could someone who has this trait just do it just because or or is it always something that they need to get out of it and they just happen to have fun doing it? Does it was that a confusing question? No, I, I understand the question. I think it is difficult to answer because there is not enough research on Machiavellianism like there is on psychopathy um, and antisocial personality disorder. And, and that's where we're looking at, okay, are they just doing it to toy with people or is it really just to get a needs met? And it's so interesting how all three of these overlap when we're talking about the dark triad. So um, like a Venn diagram. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, 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 my answer to that is I don't know. And I, I honestly, there's, there's not as much robust research out there as there are on the others because narcissism already is a, a diagnosable disorder. Psychopathy is pretty darn close. Um, it's not yet, but um, it has a lot more research behind it. But that's a great question. I don't know. Can I throw this out there? Um, as someone who might have this dark triad from history, just using a serial killer example, like H.H. H. Holmes, right? He built a, a whole like, uh, or at least worked on an entire building just to conceal the fact that he wanted to kill these people. Like, uh, so what is that? That's not, that's got to be Machiavellian, uh, right? That's definitely <laughs> that long game for sure. Right. You know, I think a lot of these will think of the worst of the worst. Yeah, that's a drastic example, obviously. Right. But when I loved it, thinking about it in terms of the con man, because, you know, these people aren't necessarily acting out violently or hurting someone or killing someone, but they are devastating people in other ways that they do need sort of that long game attached to it and not care what the result is. Does maybe the, um, the need for these serial killers, like, Oh, it's, I guess I'm, Oh man, halfway through my question, I realized that it, it's hard to even ask the question because it doesn't apply to all of them. Like the son of Sam. Right. Probably wanted to like, wanted the fame, wanted to exploit people. But then you had the golden state killer who was like, just fine fading into the dark. Yeah. You can't lump all, you can't lump them all in. I mean, I think your example of, um, of Holmes is a very interesting one, especially 
you know, as in the, especially in the last like two decades, as more information was found about him, like more collateral information about interviews that were done at the time that, you know, when it all came together, you know, he was motivated by money, but there was also something he got a joy out of, you know, he was a predator and he got joy out of, um, apparently, or he got a, certainly a sense of enjoyment in, in torturing his victims, you know, of of hearing them, hearing the women scream when they were locked in the rooms, you know, there was an element of that. And there was one, one example where he was going to pay one of his workmen to drop a huge brick on the head of another workman. He's like, I'll, you know, I'll give you $50. And the guy was like, why do you want me to do this? Because I just want to see it. I'll also be standing over there. Just drop it on his head. And now there was a motivation there because that uh, apparently it was getting to the end of the pay week for that particular employee. So he wanted him to die yeah. so he wouldn't have to pay him. So there was an underlying motivation that was financial for him. I'm pretty and sure. I, he, like I said, yeah, we just can't, we can't, but yeah, exactly. There's, there's certainly survival is boiled down in, in a lot of terms, many, many times into financial terms. So, I mean, in a twisted way, it's all about survival. And there's just a lot of wreckage that comes along with it. So just, it is, it is hard to, to pinpoint. Um, but if it, it seems like if you see it, you kind of know what it is. So, so the Golden State Killer, um, he would uh, break into people's houses, kill them. He would sometimes steal things and then he would sometimes leave them at other people's houses mm-hmm. or another example of something like that. I'm not sure if it's the same thing, but like a serial killer who will steal a piece of jewelry from a victim and then give it as a gift to another person, the person that he knows, like, because it seems to me like there's some kind of enjoyment there. Yeah. I, I think that might even be talking about a different variable, you know, no doubt they probably have these variables there as well. But like you were saying, maybe, you know, calling a victim's sister and breathing into the phone was enough for the Golden State Killer to, you know, he didn't totally fade into the background. He got a little enjoyment out of certain things. Um, And that's all going to be so specific to the person. And there really aren't enough of these prolific serial killers to have robust research on them because they're all so different and there's so many variables going on for them. So as much as we would love to like bundle them all together and say, we know what's going on. They are truly the rarest of the rare. And we're talking about rare already. I mean, psychopathy, one of the pieces of the triad, that's 1% of the population. And we're also working. I mean, we're a, we psychology attempts to be a hard science whenever it can, but so much of the time we're talking about qualitative data rather than quantitative. So we're not talking about hard numbers. We're talking about what can I get? What kind of information can I get out of this person? Which is basically like the whole mind mind hunter series and series of books is like they were taking qualitative, I mean, uh, yeah, qualitative data to form these theoretical constructs about how criminals work in these settings. And the problem is, is that the information you're getting is coming from people who love to manipulate. So it, it, you know, you're, we have to be really careful about how we process any of that data. And, um, and sometimes that's the best we have is, is self-report. So like the, um, the, the assessment for psychopathy is the PCLR, PCLR. 
Uh, it's done by a structured interview with the individual. But again, you know, you're, you're taking in information, but you're taking also in information that they're giving you. But then the other piece is that you should be doing some sort of um, collateral data collection, looking through police records, medical records, school records to back that up. And, and isn't the PCLR, uh, that was for criminals and or people for who were already incarcerated, right? That was written for? Um, it was normed off of people that were already incarcerated when they initially did their first research. Yeah. Okay. So, hmm. Okay. Well, is it true that, you know, when they say all uh, killers are psychopaths, but not all psychos are killers, um, is that true? And then is it also true with Machiavellianism? Well, with killers, I mean, people kill for all different types of reasons. Right. Domestic violence, gangs, you know. Yeah, so that's So, no, true. they're not all yeah. psychopaths, definitely not. Um, and so your reverse was, all, are all psychopaths killers? That's not no. true. No. No. I mean, they're some of the most successful Fortune 500 company leaders in this country. I mean, when we talk about that a lot, if people would just use this time and effort and for good (laughs) rather than evil. um, And sometimes they, they are not necessarily committing crimes, but they're definitely stepping on whoever they need to step on to make that money or get to the top or um, what's the book, Scott snakes and suits. Snakes and suits is a great thin volume. That's a great read. But one of the things that it explains is that, you know, in Fortune 500 companies that are dealing with, you know, millions to billions of dollars in investments, that the idea that you could make a decision that could wipe out an entire area of the financial cosmos can be overwhelming for people. And people who, ha- who you know, individuals who lack that concern but can still be very highly intelligent and can still make very reasoned decisions and then take the risk. And those risks generally work out. They generally work out. But like, I know, you know, like the idea, one of the things that's horrifying to me about uh, Bernie Madoff is like, I don't really care about the rich people he ripped off because the rich people knew they, you know, they, they had enough information and knowledge to know that that investment was was not legit. There's no way it could make the returns that he was telling. But the number of you know middle class and lower middle class people whose savings were wiped out because of that. I mean, to me, that's just horrific. Like the idea that you would you would have a job where you could make a decision like that and just destroy people's lives. But they don't care about that. It just doesn't affect them in the same way. It's really interesting to hear that because I think a lot of people, including myself, will hear someone being, um, I, I'm using the word loosely, uh, diagnosed, but if if you're diagnosed as being a psychopath or you have narcissistic behavior, Machiavellianism, uh, and now you have this dark triad, you can apply that to um, a Ponzi scheme. You know, someone can get off on creating a Ponzi scheme and stealing millions of dollars from people. You can also apply that to a serial killer who will steal lives from people and also crush the lives of the people who love that person. Uh, Is it possible for somebody to have character traits of each one of these uh, elements, create an act of violence, and then never do it again? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, even if there isn't a hard and fast diagnoses, 
you can have flavors or traits of some of them. Like say, you know, there's seven criteria that you need for uh, something. You might have two of those, you know, which leads you to make really bad decisions. Cause what if one of them is impulsiveness? Well, people commit acts of violence all the time because of impulsiveness or theft or, you know, tons of, of different types of crimes. So you can have little bits and pieces it doesn't mean it's completely the dark triad or that you meet the di hard diagnosis for um, those that we can diagnose. But people, that, that that's the wonderful variability of just human beings is, you know, we don't have to necessarily diagnose them and write them off that they're tainted goods forever. Um, so if, if someone can become aware of some of these deficits with proper rehabilitation, you know, that might not be a problem in the future. Ah, that's interesting that you said rehabilitation. This is something that I've been hung up on for a little while since reading uh, The Killer Across the Table, uh, one of John Douglas's books. He writes in that book that some people can't be rehabilitated because they were never habilitated in the first place, that they never came from any sort of what we think is a normal society or a normal upbringing. And that goes to that, I don't know if it's controversial, but the nature versus nurture. Uh, I guess there's a little bit of each in, in every single case that you deal with, but what do you think of that? Like, are there people that just have never been habilitated in the first place? And could that be even somebody of uh, great means, you know? Cause I, I think that there's yeah. a, I think that there's like a, um, uh, maybe a misconception that people who are not able to be rehabilitated maybe are from lesser means. Yeah. I mean, we use the term habituation, um, habituation rather than habilitated, rehabilitated. So we, we talk about that in our, we did our episode on um, affluenza. So, you know, this is a, a, a kid, a young man that came from a family that he, he committed an absolutely horrific crime. And then you dig deeper and you see, the, you know, did the kid even have a chance? And there are some, there, you know, not to say that there wouldn't be other teens. And there, we have had amazing, uh, amazing historical figures who have done uh, fantastic things for the world and are wonderful people that have come from terrible, terrible backgrounds. But, you know, based on certain factors, you know, if it's a overlap of substance use and maybe a head injury and no one ever drawing boundaries and maybe there's a little bit of wiring there too, you know, that's, that's a recipe for disaster right there. So, so the best research we have on psychopathy is that it is a three-legged stool and it is a mix of nature and nurture. We have that there's probably a genetic, you know, whether it's a DNA marker component um, that they've been able to identify. They call it the, the violence gene uh, or the aggression gene. There's brain structure that is different with people who meet the criteria. I won't say diagnosis, meet the criteria for psychopaths. So we have two biological pieces. People can have those two markers and still just be, you know, conforming to society's norms and, and not be and, criminals and thriving. Like the, there's right. a neuroscientist who is like, was doing research on psychopathy and gave himself the test. And like, well, he accidentally, oh. his brain scan got mixed in with the yeah. psychopaths and 
it showed the same markers as a psychopath. <laughs> That's amazing. And he it, it further, really is. He further went and got genetic testing. He had the genetic marker as well. He's a um, far removed ancestor of Lizzie Borden, by the way. Um, but the third leg of that stool is severe abuse in childhood. Trauma. He did not have that. He did not have any of that. He in had fact, a great he had, family. He had great family. He had a great father. I mean, a great uh, set of parents and was, you know, a great, great in school. And, you know, it's wonderful to read his articles and his, his sort of self-diagnosis. And we, when he's asked, well, what do you struggle with? If you know that you have these, these lacks, these big holes in your makeup. And he said, you know, I have to be really be careful with impulsivity because not only will I be the one that wants to do the zip line without a helmet and without protective gear, I want to get my family members to do it too. Yeah. Or my buddies. And I, ha and so yeah. I have to stop myself and go and, and he, you know, he's like, I have to slow the process down and, and, you know, kind of put these, uh, stop gaps in that he learned from his parents. It's almost like the sort of the, the Dexter scenario where Dexter came from trauma and had the warrior gene and all the bad stuff, but he had a stepfather or a foster father that taught him the rules. Like these, these are the rules. This is going to be your code. Um, I mean, it's a version of that. And so to bring it back to rehabilitation, psychopaths are probably the only right Scott group that we say therapy will do nothing for. And we, it's actually worse to put them in therapy. Yeah. There, there are big concerns with, with teaching them too much. <laughs> right. Right. So oh, wow. at any time I've had people score very high, um, but not cross over the threshold, a score of 30 to 40 on the PCLR would have somebody fit the criteria of a psychopath. I've had someone like around 28, 29 levels. Um, and even with them, it was enough that I knew not to put them in a group because they would hijack the group, manipulate other people and victimize other people in the group for their own enjoyment um, and learn all the skills that I was teaching people of how to better themselves and not reoffend. They would just soak all that in as education of what to fake. Um, and then individually is actually not recommended either for them to have individual treatment. Now we were bound by contract by the federal government to give them some sort of treatment. They didn't care what their diagnosis was. So we would just do the bare minimum and check in with them. Um, but it, it wasn't a pleasant hour. I can tell you that they made us work for every penny <laughs> during that hour. It's, it's really difficult. It's like it, it really exhausts working with the personality disorders is really it can be very exhausting. exhausting. It, it pulls a lot of energy out of you. A great uh, media portrayal of this is the last uh, season of The Sopranos, when Dr. Melfi, who is Tony Soprano's uh, therapist, when she finally realizes because her, her supervisor, the person that she goes to for clinical supervision, basically says, you know better, you know what's happening. He He's he's learning from you. This is not ethical for you to continue giving him therapy. And she has this sort of epiphany of like, Oh my God, what have I been doing? You know, it doesn't mean that like, and, and it was interesting in that show, he, he has an anxiety disorder, you know, which, so it's possible for people to have, it doesn't make psychopathy or sociopathy or in, you know, um, th this, these disorders doesn't mean they can't have other comorbid issues as well. But it's also a show. <laughs>
Well, you, you gave an example of how this person had a great uh, upbringing, their family life. They weren't, there was no abuse there. Is it, is it almost as simple as that sort of math equation? Like if there was abuse, but not something else, would they still be a functioning member of society or, you know what I mean? Like, like if, if there was abuse, is it guaranteed that this person would have done something or, or could they have somehow overcome that as well? I haven't seen research on a specific population that has the markers and the abuse and has not offended. So I, I don't know if that research exists. All I can tell you is that's, that's the best that we have right now. Yeah. But that's just the psycho, the, uh, psychopath. Psycho- scoop. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Correct. So that's interesting. And I have the PCLR scores of three serial killers. Do you want to hear what oh, they are? Oh, yeah, please. Um, so remember, the range is between 30 and 40. So Ted Bundy was a 39. He's um, so handsome. <laughs> I, I mean, that must be why it wasn't 40. <laughs> um, Eileen Warnos, any guesses what Eileen was? Um, uh, 34. I think she's higher than Bundy. No, I think she's lower. She's a 32. She was a 32. Yeah. I was, uh, man, I wanted her to be swinging for the fences. <laughs> Rooting for the, the underdog. Yeah, um, rough and, upbringing. <laughs> and then Brian Dugan, he was a serial killer in sh- like Chicago area in the 80s. He scored a 38. Hmm. So very high. I mean, like I said, the highest I ever had was around like, like a 28 or a 29. Didn't really even meet that criteria or that bumped over the the 30 mark. Do you know, or have you found in your research, any correlation between members of the military and psychopathy, the dark triad, narcissism, Machiavellianism? Is there any correlation between people who join the military and people who exhibit traits of, of the dark triad? I have not seen that, but I wanted to explore your question a little bit more. You mean that they're probably already there and then they join the military. Not saying that the military is the trauma, right? No, absolutely not. I'm saying that if someone has these urges, maybe they're encouraged or they understand themselves. This is a, um, a legal way to release these urges even if it's not like it could it could be not killing somebody in battle but it's at least firing a weapon it's at least getting this um this urge of violence out of their system well look what we do know is from from research and and that's related to that area is because the u.s army wanted to find out you know decades ago are psychopaths better to for military because they don't have any compunction about killing will they be like the ultimate warrior and they found out it didn't work that way at all because the psychopaths don't want to follow any rules you know they have like i want to do my own show now that's not saying that there aren't some really really shady people you know that have come out of military and have you know i would say even if they were on you know we say in risk assessment that there no one ever snaps that that the 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 process of violence is an evolutionary process and there's always a backstory there's always a sequelae of incidents that lead to the big event um 
and a lot of the times when you see these examples that are mentioned in the military, they've come from that, that like it, it didn't just happen. It was, there were a lot of things that were laid in place, but to short answer it, like that I, for what I know is that they found out very quickly that, you know, the, that that's not a suitable pursuit because you have to, in order to move up through the military ranks, you've got to, you got to be able to follow rules, right? Yeah. They probably get kicked out very early and, and pushing against those social norms is just absolutely one of the, the hallmarks. But interestingly, really quick, when we look at, um, personality assessments for police officers, you know, they do pre-employment personality testing, psychological testing. There is a, um, an item on the MMPI, which is something that they still give that looks at psychopathy essentially. And you actually want that to be a little bit elevated, not like full on (laughs) diagnosable, but you want it to be a little elevated because you want someone who is going to run towards the danger. Mm-hmm. And not away from it. And so it's one of those markers that they look at that is sort of, you know, the ideal police officer would have a tad of that sort of risk taking behavior, which I see um, fall apart in all other areas of their life sometimes. But um, but you want a little bit of that. Yeah. Now, could the psychopath or the narcissist or the person exhibiting uh, Machiavellianism traits, couldn't they enter into this enter into the military or enter into any one of these systems that had a strict code couldn't they fake that code i think they could i mean the, it, the problem with a lot of of two of the stools uh, two of the the legs on this stool or this uh two of the scoops is that narcissists and uh, they, they we're talking about people who get bored very quickly they need stimulation and regular routine and following the grunt work of the military process would probably not be tolerable for them in many cases. That's my understanding. So I think this might be relatable um, in the 40s. So Dr. Cleckley, he wrote this book, The Mask of Sanity, which was essentially like the precursor in looking at these traits that we're talking about for psychopathy. And he said that when someone like that we're talking about really isn't interested in hurting people, but they want to get what they want, usually monetary gain, that they are actually more successful at that when they're able to fake being normal, kind of that outward appearance to people, um, they tend to be more successful. So like we were saying in sort of the business world, the more they can just show people what they want to see, they actually tend to be more successful and less criminogenic or um, violent criminogenic. So I think that kind of, it, it could be, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think it could, I think it's going to be like for the reasons Scott was saying, probably they're not going to stick with it for a right. lot of other reasons. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go through these, the, the three scoops as it were, but you know, when there's a deficit in your, neurological or your cognitive or your, your emotional processing, um, then you're going to make up for it in other ways. And one of the things that we, that we've seen a lot with people with antisocial personality disorder, um, and, and narcissists is that they, they thrive on the stimulation they get from, from manipulation and from, and also, especially when it comes to a narcissist getting the feedback, you know, so that they're always kind of 
reinforcing their own grandiose uh, self view, but you can't get that in a military environment. Like, I mean, how you can't really sustain that. So in when acting normal is going to be the best case scenario for some of these people, but it's going to be also extremely hard because if they're, if they don't get the day-to-day experience that we have of empathy and compassion and joy and simple things. I mean, I, I know I sound like a real hippie in saying those things, but those are the things that we totally take for granted just because we have a fully functioning amygdala. You know, all the chemicals are firing the same way for the vast majority of the population. And that's one of the things that does spur impulsivity and spontaneity and cruelty and manipulation in that this population is because there's a deficit in their functioning that doesn't give them fulfillment in other areas. And I'll push my soapbox under the table. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So then someone with the dark triad, I assume this is uh, extremely rare. We already said that it's 1% of the population you know, might have psychopathy. So you're talking this is like uh, 0.001 or something like that? Yeah, this is very triad. limited limited edition ice cream at 31 flavors. <laughs> right. <laughs> Although if you're watching Dexter and Criminal Minds, you would think there's literally one on every corner. <laughs> right. <you know? laughs> well, get, like, can they have... Don't go in the forest. <laughs> There'll be a body farm somewhere. How normal can somebody be? Is is If you have the dark triad, is that always bad? <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I, I. I don't know how to answer that. I. I would say yes. I mean, it, it's going to be bad in that they don't know how to relate to people in their lives. They'll. They might be able to blend, but a lot of times they have to move on because people see through it sometimes, or are tired of their shit, or you know, they're. They do tend to be quite. It, I don't know if transient is the right word, but you know, one of the hallmarks on psychopathy is this sort of parasitic lifestyle. And sometimes you can only be a parasite off of a host for so long until they kick you off. Don't tell Tim that yet. Oh no. Oh, okay. (laughs) Lance is riding. (laughs) So I don't know. I mean, I, is it always bad? I, we wouldn't have the research on the ones that are good. So yeah, exactly. Because they're faking it and they're invisible. Yeah. Mm, Good point. Okay. So then out of all these characteristics um, tonight, if, if someone's listening and they're like, Oh my God, my neighbor has every single one of these characteristics. I know it. They have the dark triad. Should you confront them? (laughs) Yes. Why would you want to? (laughs) I know. I know you have the dark triad. You know what? A very subtle way to go about doing that is show up with that Napoleon ice cream that has the, it's got the strawberry. Which flavor are you? Exactly. (laughs) And then you, you can, you can kind of load your questions and you can serve them this ice cream. You can just whole test. I've, I'm, I'm wow. actually thinking about doing that. Um, you know, when I when I worked in in family counseling or individual counseling in private practice, and you know, the wreckage that ASPD individuals or NPD individuals can cause in relationships, it's just brutal because you have people coming in going, 
why are they doing this? And no matter how many times I explain why it's happening, they still, but why, but why? And then I have to go into an explanation of your, your brain, your emotional life is not the same. It's, it's like he lives or she lives on a completely different planet. You're never going to get it. You have to move on. You have to release the need for understanding why, because it's, this is, this is the challenge. The challenge is not changing him. The challenge is you moving on with your life. And then sometimes if the person is still involved, if there's like an ex that keeps coming back in the picture, or if it's a family member, you can't get away from, then I teach them what's called the gray rock technique. And the gray rock technique is something that you do. where basically in a nutshell, you make yourself boring. Non-reactive. Non-reactive, boring. You don't show any emotion to their craziness and they get bored and they go away. (laughs) That's like, wow. Yeah, that's like uh, being really, um, I guess, uh, would that be the equivalent of of, uh, blocking them on Twitter? (laughs) Well, you'd have to be really careful about that because for some of the individuals being blocked would really anger them. Very triggering. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. It's just not engaging, not reacting um, because a lot of that is what they're feeding off of. I see. Okay. And you said NPD. I just want to be clear. That's narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. Just because it's so many syllables, I'm going to be exhausted because we're going to say, we're going to say narcissistic and antisocial so much. I've already botched them all tonight. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, it's we okay. haven't really talked about that flavor. Do you want? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that flavor. That yeah, I just I also want to point out that Doctor Scott dropped a word in there that I had to look up, and I did learn something today. There. So, what was that? Uh, sequela. Never, never knew that word. Sequela. That's one of his faves. What? I. You don't know it's that one, one of my favorites, and you know where I got it. I mean, I'm so <laughs> sorry. I, I'm going to completely tell on myself because I was familiar with the term. And I used it, I, I heard it in Christine Blasey Ford's testimony about being uh, sexually assaulted by Brett Kavanaugh. And I mean, I think she's a freaking brilliant woman and incredibly brave. And she talked about this, she used this phrase called the sequelae of trauma, and it literally burned a hole in my brain. And I, I went back and sort of revisited my understanding and my paradigm of trauma and the long-term events because of that term. So hmm. probably more information than you wanted, but wow. yeah. No, no. seriously, I, I thought I was going to make a joke and now it's like, it literally just changed my life. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you want to talk about MPD? Yeah. So, um, NPD is, um, narcissistic personality disorder, and it is, uh, part of the diagnostic and statistical manual. It's been in for years and there was a lot of controversy because every few years, what we do is we shake things up with the, the, with the, the diagnostic criteria. I think a lot of it is so they can make us go out and buy another $75 book, but (laughs) that's just me. Um, well, we get rid and, of stuff. We put new stuff in. Yeah, because there might be new research that comes in that helps us have a better understanding. And there was a lot of controversy because in this in DSM five, they wanted to take out um, narcissistic personality disorder, and they kind of wanted to just kind of instead of having you know uh, more defined personality disorders, they wanted to kind of make it all this spectrum. And there was a lot of pushback from clinicians and. Narcissism, you know, first we have to talk about narcissism has, there are healthy things about having narcissistic traits, you know, having um, a healthy 
and positive self view of your mastery through life is a, is a great quality to have. And in fact, if you don't have an understanding for what you can control in your life and can, you you know, you're, you're probably going to have other issues that, um, that emerge. But one of the hallmarks in narcissism is that while a narcissist can very easily express empathy and compassion, they really are very limited in feeling it. Um, they have a limited ability to co-experience the feelings of others and then imagine what someone else is feeling. So we use this term called theory of mind. And it's one of the things that we're understanding that even other animals, other, other sentient beings in our, on our world are more capable of having a theory of mind of knowing that, oh, someone else has an interior life besides me. And narcissism, uh, narcissists tend to have a, a big problem with that. What's really fascinating is that with brain imaging over the past, you know, 35 to 40 years, we now have more data that is showing the the three major areas of the brain that really just don't light up for narcissists. And it, those are the areas that are uh, distinctly linked to empathy and uh, compassion and um, you know, having an understanding and mirroring other people's emotions. So it's a pretty complex um, process. And we say that it exists on a continuum. You know, we also say that when people are doing really badly, when they're under extreme periods of stress, they generally act out in the ways that we would uh, diagnose uh, personality disorders. Doesn't mean they have them. It just means like, oh, when this guy's really under in a crisis and under a lot of pressure, he's going to act out in a borderline way. She's going to act out in an antisocial way. And that doesn't, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It just is reflective of, um, of how they're functioning under stress. Um, it's not uncommon for somebody who displays normal everyday narcissist traits to hurt feelings or push boundaries, but that's normal. Um, so we would just say, oh, this person in this moment is being, aggressive or egotistical or selfish, or they're being insensitive, but it doesn't, you know, necessarily reflect on all of their functioning. Um, they started looking at it at the turn of the century or the turn of last century, I think 1911, um, uh, you know, when psychology was really in its infancy, it was all very Freudian. They started looking at it as like, oh, some people are just really, really focused on themselves no matter what. And what was really discovered as they started spending more time with it is that narcissists have this real challenge, a substantial challenge with their internalized experience of self-worth. And so it's, and what that gets expressed as is a really prevalent sense of entitlement. So individuals with NPD think that they, uh, they deserve special treatment. Um, they believe at times that they have special abilities and that they're exceptionally talented and that it, what's interesting is that you could have a, a really physically unattractive narcissist that feels that they can acknowledge like, oh, I'm not pretty or I'm not handsome, but I'm striking. I have, you know, I walk into a room and everybody looks at me and I carry myself. I mean, it's, it's almost like this armor that they're around. Now, the reality is, is that you can turn someone into a narcissist. Um, you know, you can take someone with sort of maybe the the precipitating neurological constructs. And as a child, if you expose them to certain uh, factors growing up. Hmm. Give us all the parenting tip. What should we yeah. not do? 
Well, what you need to do is you have to acknowledge all of the children in your family structure. And one of the things that will absolutely trigger a narcissist is when you have children that are really successful in their own way. Like one son is an artist, one daughter is particularly gifted in academics, and then another child is really gifted in sports. And then you have somebody that's just completely average. And what they do is they will formulate this entitled, aggrandized sense of self that is basically built on a fantasy in order to see themselves at the same level as the other kids. There are some people in politics that we could say, you know, fit that mold completely. And if you're a parent, the thing to do would be to be warm and, and, and compassionate and, you know, acknowledging like, oh, you're not the athlete, but you're this, or you're not this, or, you know, there's just being a good parent. They're vanilla flavored. (laughs) Yeah. You're vanilla, but you're good. Really good vanilla. Really good quality. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Narcissists really get off on fantasies of unlimited success. Um, so much that they create and like many personality disorders, they sort of create their reality as they move through the world. They, they, what is the, um, like, what is, there's an old saying or something like when, when a celebrity or when a politician starts believing their own bullshit, it's like, oh, we used all this stuff to glorify you, to get you to this position, but it wasn't really real. But then here's the person like, oh no, now I actually am all these things. Mm. But, um, one great example that I love to use, I mean, this is fascinating about narcissists is that they can be utterly devastated when they are incontrovertibly faced with their shortcomings and it can be it can absolutely shut them down like like a robot that or like a computer that's fro- frozen and one of the greatest examples of this i thought was in the uh was it wondry that did dr death mm-hmm. whatever yeah i think so company pretty okay i think it was, so I they think it was have, crawl space media <laughs> was it crawl space dr death? yeah yeah okay of course so there was there's a there's an episode where they talk about Dr. Dunch in the trials and like he thinks he has the best defense and that he's all this is going to just go away and they have one expert after another all of these the the best of the best from all over the country and they're everybody for one thing everybody in the medical community is so horrified by this guy and they're talking about how he clearly didn't know what the crap he was doing at all in any of these horrible surgeries where he hurt someone. And they noted that when they watched his, like somebody was watching for the first time, Dr. Dunch's face just fell. Like, like he actually had to sit with the reality that he was, he was a a terrible doctor, that he didn't have this, these uh, amazing talents. But only after expert, after expert, after expert, Exactly. It's just like it was pounding, pounding, pounding in just hour and hour of testimony where a guy was going, he, he tried to put a screw into a muscle when he was doing a verb, you know, just these crazy things. Anyway, that's a a great example of it. Um, And ultimately narcissists have as much as I, as much as I described it as armor, the armor is on the outside because internally they are incredibly fragile. Like they just have almost like a hollow, hollow entity inside them, much like a border, a person with borderline personality disorder. And if they, that's why they're constantly almost in a vampiric sense, always trying to suck validation off the people around them. 
and they need to constantly reinforce that. So um, there's a lot of great stuff out there to read that I think is, is fascinating, but you know, the hallmarks are an excessive need for admiration, incredible lack of empathy, a lack of compassion. And, you know, empathy is a complex process. I mean, it's not just a couple of chemicals shooting through your brain. It's a mixture of nature and nurture, you know, and good parents teach their children how to empathize when it's appropriate, sympathize when it's appropriate to show compassion, show support. And those are things that a narcissist is just, you know, the signals are crossing in their brains. They're just not able to do it. And that's my spiel on narcissism. <laughs> um, okay. I don't have many more questions other than um i can't believe you said all those awful things about lance i know i'm right here <laughs> i mean <laughs> um well no, i mean if, if i was a narcissist a parasite. <laughs> if i was a narcissist i'd be super offended and i'd walk the f right. off this episode right now yes, but i'm because i'm not a narcissist but you, but you all you know that we're just we're, we're what the crap do we know it's hypothetical like, right. Right. Well, hypothetical. Right. I do. You have know, a... we. I. I, I want to get. There's an example that we. I talk about uh, several times. I've talked about Shiloh and I having this experience with this really wonderful supervisor in our internship, and she was a young psychologist. You know, I always think it's it's you're better in mental health if you come to the profession a little bit later, so that you have like really a fully formed sense of self that then has to evolve, um, and. Our supervisor was someone who had gone right from undergrad into a master's into a doctoral program. And one of the most smart and clinically astute people I've ever worked with. Like I, it was absolute serendipity to have her. And she taught us so much about working with these difficult personalities. And I co um, facilitated a group with her of men who had been released from prison after going to prison for um, child pornography, not producing it, but for having it. And like, and it like, you know, lots of images, like we're talking movies and really, really bad stuff. And I remember being so triggered by this guy that was in our group that was, he was king of the world. Like he was somebody that was not particularly attractive but he walked in thinking like he was, you know, Paul Newman or something. And he would always, I think he was like in his late fifties or something. He would always like have his shirt unbuttoned all the way down and these crazy tight jeans that he would like man spread in the chair. And I was like, I would talk to my zipper. I was like, what is that? And she goes, that is narcissism. I mean, he is trying, he is trying to take command of the room. He's actually trying to intimidate me. By doing that trying to be and the she alpha shut, male in the room yeah trying to be the alpha male and she of course was able to shut it down like a ninja she was just amazing um you know I, I, but i remember that being my first sort of clinical understanding of narcissism and it was fascinating does someone who behave like that know that they're behaving like that yeah but why wouldn't they i mean one of the one of the hall i mean this is the, one of the things that they say if you like why, why interview a narcissist? Why do a test on a narcissist? Why give them a test? Just ask them, Hey, are you a narcissist? Because generally someone who's a narcissist goes, yeah, I am. 
<laughs> because why wouldn't they be? Aren't They're I the great? best. Why, <laughs> of course, I'm completely deserving of this term. I'm the best narcissist ever. <laughs> right, right. So that's that's and that's the overlap with what the Dunning Kruger effect. Yeah. But, no, I was um, actually just telling you guys, I'm I am the best narcissist. Oh, that, <laughs> oh copy that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Wow. Um, well, just uh, to let you guys know, I did take the uh, the dark triad personality test, and I do want to give my results here. Ooh, I okay. took it too. Oh, did you? Okay, because I yes. figure everyone um, has waited uh, the entire episode to hear these results. <laughs> um, I scored highest on narcissism in the 15th percentile, which is still pretty low, I think. Uh, score of 1.8 overall. Um, Machiavellianism, four percentiles, psychopathy, one percentile. Boring. Oh, nice. Boring. Well, I, so I, I don't think I took the version that gave the breakdown like that. It just put me at, um, 50 out of a hundred. So totally in the middle when it comes to the dark try or no, just Machiavellianism. That's the one I took. So we took two different ones. I took ah, one okay. just on Machiavellianism. And, it was okay. and, and Lance didn't need to take it because he's the best. Exactly. I, I mean, no, I, I actually I don't took need it. no stinking test. <laughs> I, I actually took it and I was like, this seems a little high. And then, um, yeah, and then, then I got a couple of phone calls from a couple of uh, a couple of guys and a couple of people showed up at my door. So right. it's been it's You're been a little bit of a now. mess since. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, actually, mid-range is good. You don't want to be too much of a pushover at the bottom, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think, you know, you need some risk if, if you want to be um, successful in any kind of business. I think you need to take some risk. So, uh, you know, I think, and honestly, I don't think like we, we who the hell podcasts if they don't have some level of narcissism, right? Or insanity. <laughs> actually, yeah, so, you, took, yes. you take but, the test and they, they they ask what your occupation is and you say podcaster and they're like, you are a narcissistic <laughs> psychopath. <laughs> yeah, well. I was really blown away by hearing uh, some, some definition that led me to an answer that I've always had about Israel Keys and how Israel Keys was so concerned about um, his daughter not wanting, like didn't want his daughter to know about how he was a serial killer and he didn't want, you know, his name being thrown around in the true crime bullshit world. And, and that's, that's not because he has empathy. That was my problem. I was like, it feels like he might have empathy no, I because think he, he did. Yeah, I think actually Keys does did um, and, right, and, and, and yeah, Hallmark, uh, Josh Hallmark from True Crime Bullshit, uh, kind of talks about this too because if Keys got to know somebody, he couldn't do it basically. Exactly. Yeah, but that might not have been so, like straight yeah, up. Yeah, but that's that's right. But that's also a narcissistic quality, yeah. is right? That oh. If 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 the narcissist, we have, we have a term we use called here. So write this down, Lance. Mm. Um, <laughs> narcissistic extension. So the narcissist really does also, this is something I didn't mention, but can have a really truncated or limited ability to recognize that others actually exist outside of their orbit. So if I was a full-blown narcissist and I'm getting what I need from you guys because we're collaborating on a project and you're being nice to me and you're telling me how, how great I am, well, I start to consider you as a limb of mine. It's like you're my arm. So my, my arm does what I tell it to do. So in, in the, and that's one of the reasons like, um, 
we look at like one of the things that's hardest to work with in marriage counseling is when a couple comes in and one is a narcissist and one is a borderline because they get in this toxic yin and yang um, engagement that is so hard to break because they don't want to break it. You know, that's, it's, it's what feeds them. So the idea that this end that Israel would, would have like what we call, I mean, what, what seems like compassion. It's like, well, no, I want to protect my hands, right? My hands are part of me. So it's self-preservation. Yeah. She's just an extension of him. Yeah. It's not for her. It's, it's for, for him. him. Wow. Yeah. That's really, that's really smart. And uh, what really, w- one more question I have here. Um, if someone, and maybe it sounds like someone with the full realized dark triad, maybe it would be hard to have a relationship with that person. Maybe that person would, you know, really struggle in a relationship. But is it, what would happen in the case of rejection, say? Um, well, I mean, it, is that too it hard? Has to, a, is that too no, broad? Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it is. We can, you know, sort of dive into that a little bit. I, I think it could have the potential for violence, but like, you know, piggybacking on this narcissistic extension we're talking about, they also will just lop those people off. Like they would lop an arm off if it was of no use to them. It's infected. So So once Scott's not getting anything out of Tim and Lance anymore, he'd be like, bye, you're dead to me. Um, Block. So yeah, yeah. Block. Um, but that that's just kind of pinpointing on the narcissism piece. And we have to remember there's two other overlapping, you know, strong traits here. Right. I think it was Martha Stout is a psychologist that wrote a book a few years ago called The Sociopath Next Door that I love. It's, a, it's like snakes in suits. I mean, it's a quick read, but really boils down things in, in a, into a digestible form. And she gives an example of working with a client who was dating a narcissist, this or, this, or a, a, not so much a narcissist, but dating someone with um, ASPD, you know, someone that was always like demanding money or needing money and, you know, sort of this parasitic lifestyle that we were talking about. And the woman came into therapy and she said, I, he came in, he had gone to the grocery store and gotten him a, gotten himself a pint of ice cream And he sat down on the couch to watch TV and started eating it. And I said, Hey, did you get me any ice cream? And he turned, looked at her and his eyes went black and he threw down the ice cream and said, I'm so sick of your selfish shit. Walked out the door and she never saw him again. Well, that, I mean, in fairness, that's really selfish that she wanted the ice cream when he was eating it. When we're talking about ice cream, I I think all bets are off. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, but to your point, yeah, that's okay. I see what you're saying. Again, if if they're not forming attachments to other people and can't empathize, then why would they care if, you know, that person or there started to be some sort of conflict in in the relationship? So um, they just move on.